This is The Solid Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. Solid is about the new hardware movement, the radical new way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. It's about design, electronics, software, networks, materials, and the horizons of technology, like synthetic biology. The next Solid Conferences will take place on April 20 through 22, 2016, in San Francisco. To register, watch videos, or sign up for our newsletter, visit solidcon.com. Hey, John, what do we got this week? This week, we've got Rene DiResta and Brady Forrest. The two of them, along with Ryan Vineyard, have co-authored a book called The Hardware Startup. What's it about? It's about hardware startups, David. That makes sense. The Hardware Startup is out now from our good friends at O'Reilly Media. <laughs> Great. Brady runs Highway One, which is a hardware incubator in San Francisco, and is also featured on the new program Bazillion Dollar Club, found on the Sci-Fi Network. And Renee runs business development at Haven, which is a marketplace for shipping capacity. So yeah, let's hear what Brady and Renee had to say about the hardware startup. And let's say the hardware startup again. The hardware startup. The hardware startup. So you guys wrote a book called The Hardware Startup. What is a hardware startup? And why is it special now? Well, when we're writing this book, we're really thinking of technology companies that are manufacturing a product, usually that is connected to the internet in some way and has a software component, though that's not only uh, the type of company we address in there, but that I'd say that's the main theory behind it. And running Highway One, I interact with a lot of different hardware startups and Renee is has made a name for herself in the venture world as one of the foremost hardware experts out there. The idea for the book actually came about in large part because um, I found myself having many of the same conversations about uh, strategy mm -hmm. and uh, the importance of branding, the importance of the business side, actually, of building a connected product. Uh, so working with Brady and Ryan was a, a natural, um, a lot of uh, complementary skills there in terms of uh, identifying both what you needed to do to build a brand, uh, to build a product, uh, to secure funding, to take it to market. So, so a lot of people keep coming up to you and saying things like, should I have a Kickstarter campaign now or later? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we wanted, the reason we want to participate is we wanted better applicants and we want better companies because we end up saying the same thing over and over again as well. And we're hoping that the future generation of hardware startups reads this and honestly in Dan Shapiro's hot seat book. Mm -hmm. as well. And then when they come in, we can really dive in to the next level of decisions and try and figure out exactly how they should go to market and what that product should look like, as opposed to just general, who do we hire? What are term sheets? Stuff like that. And I think before I became an investor, I had read uh, Do More Faster and Be Smarter Than Your VC and a series of other titles that were, um, I think, a, a couple of blogs, uh, Fred Wilson's blog. You know, and I found the thought leadership around software startups uh, had really fundamentally changed. You know, Eric Riesling's startup, a lot of the thought leadership that had come out of that hadn't necessarily been applied to hardware startups yet, to the unique constraints of building a physical product and understanding uh, the importance of branding and packaging and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because a lot of people in the tech industry, software tech, uh, they're afraid of hardware startups. You mm -hmm. know, when I'm mm -hmm. recruiting mentors and they're like, but I don't know hardware. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't know what to say to these people. I'm like, they have all the same problems as every other startup, you know, <laughs> founder issues, software, marketing, branding, right. and they have hardware. I'll take care of the hardware. You help them with everything else or right, right. whatever your expertise is. Yeah, I mean, were there hardware startups as such, say, five years ago? I think that we started to see a real rise in hardware startups just about four years ago. Uh, I, I remember I met Nick Pinkston, I would say, just about five years ago now. Mm -hmm. And he was really instrumental in saying, you know, there's fragmented activity, particularly people at outgrowths of the maker movement, mm -hmm. uh, maker pro type who were interested in potentially turning their, uh, their project into a product. And so he really pulled together a huge community in San Francisco and it just grew and grew and he did an amazing job galvanizing activity. Uh, and then VCs did start to take notice. I think Kickstarter was also had kind of come into its own around the same time. Mm -hmm. And we were seeing a lot of products like the Pebble uh, attract quite a bit of attention. So I think the investor community started to take note. And then after that, uh, when, when there was, you know, money available, uh, it became, uh, and when, when success stories were visible, uh, it became something that people started to think, Hey, I can actually do this. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm interested to know, I mean, I know we talk about 
sort of the path that VCs have gone down coming from like the hardware, I was going from coming from the software investing background and like figuring out how to do hardware stuff. And like, everyone's like, oh yeah, everyone's afraid of it because it like takes longer and costs more money. But like how, like sort of more specifically do you, you know, are, are people learning how to do these things from like the business perspective? Like besides just getting, becoming okay with spending more money on things and it taking more time. Like, I mean, are there, you know, like what kinds of things have From the VC learned? perspective? Yeah, yeah, from the VC perspective. I mean, I think it always comes down to team and product and market. But I think what you will see now is that, you know, a company can raise a little amount of money and then go out and do a crowdfunding campaign. And I if see. they really rock that, then they can get investors over the hump. Okay, so, so that's, because I mean... I remember when we were raising for our startup, um, you know, the issue was people didn't know how to deal with like, well, how many users do you have? And it's like, well, I can't, I can't have any users until I have some money to make some <laughs> things so that I can then get users. And so, you know, that used to be one of the main entry points in like making an evaluation of like risk and like how far along it is and stuff. But like, how are people compensating for that from like the, the risk reduction side of things? I think it is still proving that there's an audience, uh, and it is it is absolutely a challenge. Um, I think it's you know, for for a while there we were starting we were seeing Kickstarter as the as that proof point, as as, kind of gating thing. Yeah, as, as a um, right as market validation. I think that to some extent that's actually shifted back a little bit now. Uh, as I've started to see, you know, uh, we wrote a report for um, for Solid actually looking hardware at, by the numbers <laughs> by Renee Deresta. Yes, and we we wrote it. And one of the things that um, Matt Withyler uh, from Flybridge and I had looked at for that was uh, percentage who raised before funding versus uh, versus mm. after, and we'd really started to see a shift because people were starting to think of crowdfunding more as a go to market than as a proof of concept. Right. And so I think that in part this was uh, establishment of hardware as a viable category. Investors mm. who came in and had some experience, you know, certain investors have really made a name for themselves as firms that will do hardware. Rob Bear from Shasta is a is an excellent example. Um, I think Trey Vassilo is another. There's, there's a Formation handful. Aid is raising a hardware specific fund. Avidan mm. Ross with Lionswell. Mm. Mm. There are a number of hardware specific people out there right now. And that I think also is, is providing seed capital where they can get a small round of funding and then use the Kickstarter rather than as the proof point as the launch point. Mm -hmm. And this is what we've been trying to get most of our companies to do. Now, if a company can't raise, sometimes right. they go to kick crowdfunding anyway. Mm -hmm. um, when they decide to do that, kind of out of not quite desperation, but mm -hmm. out of mm -hmm. a, a sense of urgency, a sense of urgency, <laughs> uh, then we really push them to, to put it high. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. you look at, I mean, I love the story of Particle, uh, mm -hmm. formerly known as Spark, where Zach and Zach, you know, wanted to do connected light bulbs. They actually worked with Dragon and were certified. And, um, and they were Hackcelerator then, right? They were at yeah. Hacks. They worked with Dragon to find out like how much how uh, how much it would cost. Scott said it has to be 250k or you can't do it. Mm -hmm. And they're like, but we'll only raise a little over 100, so we can't do 250. And Scott's like, you can't you can't make it for 100. <laughs> and so he put it up for 250. They raised 120, killed it, and out of that was birthed. Uh, the Spark Photon mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or Spark Core. And they set the limit at 10,000 because it was a lot easier to make a board. Mm -hmm. And they ended up raising 600,000 hmm. and have a whole new business. So sometimes failure is the right path. Right, know? right. And the companies that, that can't raise a round and then go straight to Kickstarter, are they then using their Kickstarter receipts as working capital or are they taking the results of the Kickstarter to another VC and, and trying again to raise a round? usually they try and use that to raise a round yeah. mm -hmm. and use the the funds from Kickstarter as working capital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes they don't do that. I mean, this is now I'm talking very generically. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, I mean, you see Kickstarter projects all the time that just completely fail. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and I imagine that's what happens there where they start to pay each other out of the out of the money and assume it'll happen. Like, oh, I mean, this happened with uh, Instacube. Sure, sure. I mean, where they just started paying themselves and then suddenly they ran out of money. Mm -hmm. And when we got the product, I think it was 18 months late, maybe two years late. I mean, it's a piece of crap. Yeah, like, yeah. It doesn't work. I haven't bothered following up with them because... There's I mean, no just, company left there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that, that's a, that seems like a huge mistake that a lot of people make is thinking of that money from Kickstarter, which, you know, when you get a check for like a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars, that's a lot of money. Um, but it's the money that goes into the products that you now owe people. 
Right. Yeah. Another shout out to uh, to Matt Withyler on this uh, over at Flybridge. He did a great study looking at how much was raised relative to how late the delivery was. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish I had that in front of me right now, but something for people to uh, potentially check out. Well, one of our companies at Highway One, Current Labs, you know, they wanted to get a product out there. They wanted to show that there was some market validation, but they knew they weren't ready to go to large scale manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so we. We worked out a plan where they did what we call a Kickstarter beta. Mm -hmm. So they just put it up for 30 units and those units sold out in 24 hours. And they're darn close to shipping them right now, which will mean that they'll then have customers. They'll have data so their products will be better mm -hmm. when they go out for like the real Kickstarter. And they'll have a, pipeline, this they'll have a pipeline for their manufacturing process as well. Hmm. They'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll know more about what they will have already done their like DVT, but they're doing all that yeah. with a very manually. They're not doing a true manufacturing process right now. So to talk about the kinds of people you're seeing becoming hardware entrepreneurs, are these people who, who have a hardcore hardware background, you know, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, are they people from software backgrounds or are they just like total neophytes who are leaving a background in uh, investment banking and moving into into hardware startups. Well, I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of people who have come out with some sort of tech background. Maybe um, I'm thinking from Christina from uh, from Ringley, who was at uh, I believe uh, eBay and and Hunch. Hunch. Yeah, and she just had an idea and a product that she wanted to see realized. And I think that uh, a lot of people have visions for products that they want to exist. And even outside of tech, I think this is one of the things that makes something like Shark Tank so compelling to so many people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, just the idea that, hey, wouldn't it be great if I had a thing that did this? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I mean, I, I've seen all of those. We actually just had an investment banker who, who um, trying to remember if it, no, uh, who came up with an idea and decided to invest his own money in it and found a tech partner and he's handling the business and product mm -hmm. design and the tech partner is building everything. And um, but I would say, you know, our thesis with Highway One was that we were going to take, we would be getting primarily software teams. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding is we're getting everything. We're mm -hmm. getting teams that have software background and we're getting hardcore engineers who came up with an idea, but need business help or need the software help. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think it's much more akin to Renee's thesis that someone has an idea and decides to just go for it. Yeah. And the barriers are low enough now that you don't have to be in it and, and, HP or a Dell or something to make this kinds of thing happen. No, but we look for engineers. Like mm -hmm. we like to have at least one engineer on the team mm -hmm. uh, or someone who has a lot of experience working with hardware so that they know so that they have the rigor mm -hmm. to work with the different contractors that they have. There needs to be some ownership and some like true technical knowledge mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to move the ball across the field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to be the entire team. Right, right, right. So walk us through the... Um, the hardware startup, kind of the advice that you're giving to these companies, um, you know, w when you have an idea, what's the what's the kind of first first step in the process? Where does your book start off? We start off with the validation process, validation for the idea. We start off with identifying. Um, you know, really the same kind of in-depth uh, studies that you would do for software, identifying what is your minimum viable product going to look like, who is going to want it, uh, really having a consistent uh, conversation going with potential early adopters, growing support long before it exists. It was something that Pebble did incredibly well, uh, really starting to shape your early adopter community from day one. The same type of idea validation that you would do with a software product, except instead of paper mockups, maybe you have foam. Mm -hmm. Maybe you start mm -hmm. with paper mockups and then move to foam. Just getting at the different stages of you know what your looks like prototype has to be to convey a sense of the product to people. Um, and developing, I would say, sort of in concert with uh, what your what your feature set is going to look like. I think one of the things we try to emphasize a lot is also consistency across mm -hmm. um, across the the business in in terms of um you know as you grow that community and have a sense of who your users are what does that customer persona really look like how much money are they willing to spend on something that really sets your price point if you can't produce your product for under let's say maybe 50 percent of that uh you really are going to have a hard time mm -hmm. um does your you know as you start to think about your use cases uh you know how does that tie into the branding that you're going to uh, to come up with the the voice of your company, the perception of your company, and kind of building that, uh, mm -hmm. building that relatively early, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then also building the team. 
and looking to people that you've worked with before. I mean, I like to see teams that have known each other for a while, have already had conflict and <laughs> known how to resolve it. Uh, people who come together just for a team, I think it's kind of a crapshoot as to whether or not you'll still be talking in six months and sure, you're yeah. about to start dealing with one of the highest pressure situations you could ever be in and with lots of money. Mm -hmm. And especially mm -hmm. after a crowdfunding campaign goes out with customers who've given you money, which is yeah. even worse. It's not, it's not a, it's not a semester long class project with a randomly assigned group. It's like you need to have <laughs> a serious and functional relationship because it's a lot of stress and a lot of time. Yeah. And so how does, how does idea validation sort of work? I mean, in, in hardware, how is it different from software? Like in software, you can, you know, web software, you just throw together a website and throw it to your friends and say, what do you think of this? Depending on what it is, it, it takes longer in mm -hmm. general. Cause I mean, you have to make the models, you have to make the product. If, if you are trying to test out the form, you have to make a bunch of those and get tested and then you have to redesign a whole new thing. It's not as simple as deleting a button or adding a, mm -hmm. a, uh, text field. Mm -hmm. And if you are then getting into electronics or some integration of the two, then it can take even longer. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we see is something like, okay, so make, make the, the prototype that's to be tested. That's one week, then give it to your consumers. That's another week where they can actually come back and say, then the next week is spent revving mm -hmm. and then you make it. And so it's like three weeks to test each prototype. And so, and if you're a startup, you don't have that many people, so you can't do things stacked. You can't just have a rev team. You can't just have a testing team. Right. It's all the same team. And you're all completely immersed in it. And it's expensive Yeah. because chances are you're sending out boards. Chances are you're um, getting new models made mm -hmm. or it costs a lot of money to printers. press compile. It does. Yeah. Yeah. You do a new revision. Yep. That's very true. Yeah, I mean, how much are how much are the the companies that uh, in your portfolio spending on that first that first prototype? Um, the good, at least $20,000, Okay, maybe more, which is not crazy, yeah. but it's not cheap and so that's not salaries. So that's like, say we're making some kind of connected device accessory mm -hmm. type thing. So that's like a 3d, couple 3d printed prototypes of the enclosure and like a run that, you know, that's probably a few hundred dollars well, maybe to a thousand designing, dollars. It, it depends on Industrial if you have. Industrial design yeah. costs money, takes time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you said that's without salaries. Or you're well, talking contractors. Contractors. I see, I see. Mm -hmm. So, like, you so got you're designing the board, then you send, yeah. ideally you send circuit it out. Board, circuit board production, 3D printed prototypes of stuff, and then also some contractors to help you with the industrial design. And, and your tech shop or something membership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Sp speaking of industrial design, when do you go to an industrial designer with this? Um, that is the... We do that week one of Highway One. It's got to be so. People come to you so, with yeah. like a with like a styrofoam box with wires coming out of it and buttons drawn on with Sharpie, and and the next thing you do is go to an industrial designer. Um, we don't take in anyone that doesn't have a functional prototype. We don't expect it. We we want a basic works like on the hardware mm -hmm. side, and then we work with them to get the software going, and then to start to professionalize those electronics. Mm -hmm. okay. And then we introduce them to an industrial design firms because, you know, hopefully by the, by the time they come to us, we generally know what the product is going to be. Mm -hmm. And we spend some time figuring out the customer. So like a company I was meeting with today that's coming into the next time we went class, they have the technology, uh, they can release it to consumers, but to send it to the hospitals, they have to go through FDA. So the first design we're going to go for is like the Kickstarter design. Mm -hmm. And then the second design will be more towards hospitals. And with hospitals, you have to, we're trying to figure out like, do you make the electronics detachable from the part that goes on the body? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Or do you have something that's wiped down so it can be swapped in between patients? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of consideration that will come in. And you work with the designers on that. Like, I mean, yeah. As well yeah. As so people, we do yeah. a design I mean, mixer where we bring in... Well, any industrial design team that we can find mm -hmm. or any firm that will that is willing to work with startups. And mm -hmm. most of the time they're willing to do startup rates. Yeah. Hmm. Which means cheaper or equity or even invest. Like we have a team right yeah. now that's being offered investment from two different industrial mm -hmm. design firms. What's the the process like for working with a industrial design firm, you know, if they're working with you as a, as a startup, do they do main, are they expected mainly to be like stylists and like dress up the enclosure thing? Or do they actually work with the teams on like the sort of design process, like the philosophical design process parts? It parts. depends on the firm. Mm -hmm. 
some firms are just come in and they pretty up what you have. Uh, most firms that we work with will go through a process where they, you know, they work with you, they chat with you, and then they kind of ideate, and then they'll make some models of the basic of the of your favorites, and then kind of work from there. And then the more advanced ones will actually come up with like app concepts and tie together the app with the with the industrial design. Mm -hmm. And we, the way we kick it off is, you know, well, I've got 11 teams, 13 teams coming in this time and I'll have 14 design firms and each team will get up and do a two minute pitch and kind of show what they have as their latest and greatest. And then people just kind of circulate and chat and oh, that's eventually cool. uh, someone will probably about half the teams will end up working with one of those designers. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a number of firms in both New York and San Francisco that will do bracketed rates. You know, hey, we'll do billable hours up to five thousand dollars, and then this, and, you know, we'll we'll aim for a certain deliverable, and then after that, we can talk to you again about your budget. And and that's one way to do it, where you have these iterations, but you've also you're moving the product forward in other ways, and you're not committing to doing yeah. a full, uh, mm -hmm. you know, necessarily a full design project. Another thing that they'll they'll use it for the ones particularly who do industrial design on the early side is to have photorealistic mockups, hmm. and that's as a way to convey to an audience, uh, convey to your users what what this thing might look like, convey to an investor what this thing might look like. And it's uh, just a way to uh, not necessarily produce the full physical prototype, but to, mm -hmm. to begin to have those conversations around what that design might look like. Let's let's keep putting price tags on these because I think it's a really useful frame of reference. You said $20,000 on the, the process of the first um, prototype. What's a typical fee from a decent industrial designer for these early stages of, of work? A reasonable one is about $20,000, so I'm not even getting you all the way to like pretty industrial design. But yeah, you yeah. can get much cheaper industrial design, like kind of the akin to 99 Logos or mm -hmm, whatever mm -hmm. the, that site is called. Go on Odesk. Like red Clay. Yeah, Odesk, Fiverr. Red Clay. Yeah, yeah. Fiverr. Odesk, you know, now, we have, formerly Odesk, now Upwork. Right. We have teams that have industrial designers, and then they often, they'll start off, and then that person will then own the relationship with the mm -hmm. real industrial designer. Hmm. That's not always the case, but often the case. So, so you mean there's an industrial designer co-founder who then is just in charge of hiring the industrial design team to do, to do other well, stuff? Well, they do the initial models and okay. design. And then depending on everything, we kind of urge them to perhaps find someone who does this all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, They'll have other things to worry about as yeah. co-founders of the company. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you go through... Um, Early prototyping, 20 grand. Hire a good uh, industrial designer, 20 grand. Um, then what? 20 grand's on the cheap side, like just to be super clear. Of, of industrial okay. designers? You yeah, mean, okay. it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, or a big chunk of equity mm -hmm. uh, afterward. Then you find your contractors to help you build your boards and to help you build your enclosures, or you have those skills in-house. Um, then I think you start to, all along the way, you keep doing customer trials. Mm -hmm. and making mm -hmm. sure that people actually like them. It's kind of one of your time costs. It's important yeah. to think of it both in terms of time cost and money cost. And you save money cost by putting in the upfront hours to get those customer interviews done upfront. So this is just, these are the weeks now where you're developing a new uh, prototype of the enclosure every week and handing it to someone and noticing that they're bumping the side button every time they put it in their pocket. And then you go, oh, damn it. I have to go back and relook at this button. Mm -hmm. That takes a week. And you make a new board. And you mm -hmm. make a new enclosure that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and a lot of firms will give you CAD along with their designs. Or mm -hmm. if they don't, then you have to, it kind of depends on the skills oh. that they have. I remember working oh. with web designers. It's kind of like, okay, so the web designer you're working with, do they just do it in Photoshop? Or do mm -hmm. they give you the HTML? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's kind of like, does your design firm give you a pretty image? Or do they give you the CAD? Interesting. If not, you have to interpret it on your own. And then as you're going along, at what point do you have to start to commit to um, really nice photorealistic renderings, um, a good promotional video, stuff like that, that you're going to start showing to the outside world? We usually have, once they get the main functionality out uh, and they mostly know their bomb, we push them to get into like a looks like, works like pro integrated prototype. And mm -hmm. that's sort of like the end result of how we won and what you know, what we call a fundable prototype. They can then start taking that around for true venture funding, uh, perhaps getting a Kickstarter video going. Mm -hmm. um, now that's not the DFM process. That next step would be design for manufacturing and design for assembly and design for cost. 
mm-hmm. where you try to scale down the bomb. So maybe you your initial uh, prototype was using electric imp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's great for prototyping because it's super fast, but it's like a $12 bomb cost. Yeah. And so you decide to move that out and get another chip. And you do some calculation about how much engineering time is required to rewrite the, the relevant firmware and put it on a different chip. Yep. And it trades off. Yeah. Yeah. But if your product was not going to make it past the third customer trial, then it was much better to go with Electric Amp than yeah. to spend all your time on getting the Bluetooth to work on Nordic. Yeah, yeah. Um, a great. I was just having a chat with one of my founders today, and they're spending money on Twilio. Hmm. Twilio is not expensive, but Twilio is more expensive than some other options. But the difference is he can he was able to integrate Twilio in the morning, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. his co-founder's like, no, no, we should go cheap. It's yeah. like, well, yeah. so the tool I gave him was calculate out your salaries, calculate out the, the you know, the opportunity cost of not launching mm-hmm. and then figure out if two days of your of those two costs uh, are more than your Twilio bill. And mm-hmm. that's your calculation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then so, OK, so you're going from now you have a looks like works like prototype. Hopefully you get some funding yeah. and then you start working with, say, an engineering firm to go through DFM unless you have those skills in hand. And around that time, you should really start looking in earnest for your manufacturing partner and figuring out how are you going to actually get this to market? What does this process look like? Uh, PCH has Lime Lab that does DFM work mm-hmm. in conjunction with the manufacturing arm. And Flextronics, Foxconn, like Jabil, they all these larger guys do the same thing. And if you decide to work with, say, Dragon, like they'll help you out with this process as well. Um, and then you find your manufacturing arm. Now, if you don't know if you're going to scale, then what Bunny recommends in the book uh, is Bunny go local. Bunny. And that's what we recommend to a lot of our teams. We find like a local manufacturing arm so that they don't have to spend a lot of time going back and forth to China. This or is, you mean do- other... domestic to wherever you yeah, are? Domestic yeah, domestic to wherever you are. Um, as long as it'll work, mm-hmm. you know, when you start to get above, say, 5000 or 10000 a month, or if you see that that coming, that cliff coming, then you should start to move to another geography that can really support. Mm-hmm. And that's what our teams do. So, you know, Fishbit is doing it all local right now. We'll see what, how their Kickstarter does and where mm-hmm. they end up doing their manufacturing mm-hmm. long term. Mm-hmm. And um, to keep putting uh, numbers to the hardware mm-hmm. process, uh, what does the DFM process usually cost? Assuming you're not necessarily in Highway 1 and getting these services through LimeLab open market, I mean, this depends. A couple hundred sure. thousand dollars. Wow. Can be very expensive. It depends on how complicated yeah. the product is. Yeah, yeah. And how skilled your mechanical engineer was. Yeah. How many yeah, mistakes I mean, you made early on. I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's important to note that even during the early prototyping process, it's, it's important to like familiarize oneself with the various manufacturing processes. Like you should know what injection molding is and like how it works, at least at the high level, or like, you know several other manufacturing processes that are commonly used in making these types of devices because if you make a thing in a prototype that you can easily 3d print you might be accidentally making it in the kind of way that's like impossible to make in an injection mold when you go to the dfm process and if you get that far down the line you know when you get to dfm you have to do some extra work but if you're smart along the prototyping process way it can either be a little bit of extra work or a ridiculous huge amount of extra work. And so it's, it's always important to be keeping that stuff in mind when you're developing the prototypes, I think. And that's why we, uh, one of the steps we have the teams go through is use a CNC. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. start off doing, yeah. you know, they just, well, they start with like foam and clay mm-hmm. and wood, and then they go to 3D printing and then they go to CNC mm-hmm. yeah. because with 3D printing, you can make what we call impossible shapes. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a lot about the hardware development process that when I talk with people and ask them about how they learned about something, um, they reply that it's really a dark art and you just kind of like learn it by doing it and you make a lot mm-hmm. of mistakes. And mm-hmm. DFM in particular is just like the 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 darkest of the really of the dark bitten. arts in hardware. Yeah. You know, it's just it's a lot of like just learning through very hard experience that you sent something to the injection molding company that. Um, wasn't injection moldable and <laughs> instead of telling you that you could change one thing and then send it back they just send you a quote for four times what you anticipated and you have to kind of like work backwards and figure yeah. out what it was yeah because you're making an injection mold like that is you actually have to make like making a mold tool is like an entirely new engineering project it's almost like making a separate product because these are giant blocks of steel that have to be milled out they have features in them like ejector pens they you have to figure out where the right place to put the ports are and everything 
And so like the actual shape of your product that you want to make actually has a lot to do with how difficult it is to make the mold and how much money it's going to cost. And then you don't always even know if you own the molds. That's, oh, a, yes, that's, that's a another gotcha. Yeah. A lot of people don't think to ask for those things. Mm -hmm. And so they mm -hmm. can't even switch factories. So if you like drop $20,000 on an injection mold at one factory, you have like a, you know, one ton piece of steel sitting over at that factory that they can use to make your parts. <laughs> but then like you have a falling out with the people who own the factory, you find out you can get per part cost way cheaper somewhere else. They might not give you the mold. And even mm -hmm. if they do, how the heck do you get it to like where else you're, you know, if you, if you start and build a relationship with an injection molding company in the U S and then you decide eventually that you've gotten, you know, that you want to move it over overseas or something like that, you probably might have to go back and like redo a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've had money. friends have to like, they've realized they're having a dispute with, uh, their contractor or, you know, kind of manufacturing house. This was up in Seattle and they realized that the person probably hadn't communicated to the warehouse yet. So they like ran over there and got all their stuff out oh, before, wow. before it could become like a major dispute. And then yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. figured out the billing and everything, but like the people were jacking up the price and yeah, had yeah. made a veiled, not so veiled threat over the phone. And they're like, Oh shit. Yeah. They had to like you spirit know. the assets out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. And yeah, I mean, so the next step after the DFM is figuring out like what the line is. And mm -hmm. so we call that non-recurring engineering. So NRE. And so that's like sunk cost to build the line. And that can cost several hundred thousand dollars as well. And it's usually, you know, really examining, you know, you look at the DFM and DFA and DFC process. And then part of the outcome of that is the NRE. Mm -hmm. And that would be done over wherever, whatever, wherever you choose to do the factory. And you typically, that's a, that's an engineering fee that you pay to your contract manufacturer or you're hiring mm -hmm. someone else in the middle. Uh, generally that's done by the CM okay, mm -hmm. and or whoever's managing the factory for you. Another thing Sorry. to touch on, on the cost front that happens somewhat simultaneously is thinking about your marketing costs. And that was something where as a VC, I would often see uh, really sophisticated spreadsheets that would come through that would have NREs and, you know, line cost, fueling cost, et cetera, et cetera. And then you would look down at the marketing line item and it would be something like, oh, a thousand dollars per month, mm -hmm. you know, which if anybody who's ever ran any kind of campaign realizes that that's not, uh, it's, that's nothing actually. Mm -hmm. uh, not even, you know, it's not counting if you're doing professional branding, professional packaging design, uh, having a, a package that will stand out on a shelf if you're planning on going you know, into, uh, into retail eventually, or more likely, a. uh, uh, uh pleasing unboxing experience. And you know, I think a lot of um, companies that I've spoken with have uh, ideas about Apple product packaging and don't realize mm -hmm. the phenomenal per unit cost that actually goes into uh, something like that. You know, looking at five, ten dollars per per unit for wow. a really pleasant, uh, high quality, nice paper. To have magnets embedded in it. Right, that. right. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, I remember speaking with one company that also had an idea for a really um, unique uh, unique shape for the container they wanted it to arrive for their Kickstarter backers in a, a really exotic um, kind of cool way and hadn't thought about just the shipping costs, the, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. uh, amount of extra money that would go into an irregular sized package and the, you know, peanuts that were going to be needed to keep this thing in place for this magical experience mm -hmm. and stuff. And so there's a lot of other costs that are often uh, neglected because so much of the focus, particularly with tech team founders, so much of the focus is on building the thing. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. the marketing and distribution, I, I think a lot of people think that they're, you know, even running your Kickstarter campaign, we see quotes of a couple hundred thousand dollars for, um, for good PR, for, for, um, for, you know, what's the going rate for a video? $30,000 for some of these, uh, yeah, right. mm -hmm. yeah $30,000 for a good video. Uh, and, and as you, you know, these little things that people think of as, oh, it's a three minute video, it really adds up mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you're trying to, to build something that people are going to want to share to create that kind of natural organic marketing, uh, rather than simply doing paid placement everywhere. And, and these are things that are often not really budgeted for, um, early yeah. enough. So, well, and, the, and some of the best videographers will now do it for Take equity. equity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. yeah. Them too. Mm -hmm. So there's, so you mentioned, uh, Renee, a couple of different aspects of marketing and distribution that people need to think about from the beginning, the kind of like packaging, logistics, um, distribution channels, but also PR and marketing and branding. Um, where do people go with a, with a small hardware startup, um, to get that kind of expertise to, to have these reality checks on things like, will this box fit on a target shelf? I think a lot of that, uh, you know, advisors are really um, are really key people who've done it before and, and have had that experience. I think uh, there's, you know, a few of the large big box stores actually have innovation centers also. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you can echo this, but I've actually found them quite receptive to 
to to meeting companies relatively early on, hmm. um, saying, "Hey, you know, what 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 do I need to? What what are your requirements?" Um, some of them will actually have it on the site. You know, I know if you go to Walmart or Target, you can actually read their logistics requirements. Huh. They're right on there. You know, this is the uh, the times of day we will accept delivery. This is how our distribution centers work. Here's our, you know, and these are non-negotiable. You are you are not mm -hmm. going to. Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to, you know work with you on any of that it's just flat out how they work yeah yeah like and that includes how they pay you which is another i think thing that six uh, month net terms yeah or something. exactly yeah. and you have to deal with returns sure sure yeah and so what what do you get at these innovation centers do you is this something that you send every company now to talk with like a buyer at best buy or target or um how, how essential is it um i mean they can offer some really good ideas uh, and they they know their customers usually quite well, and they'll have very specific thoughts on cost. Mm -hmm. And but I mean, honestly, I wouldn't recommend. I would recommend chatting with them, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend inking any deals with for a startup, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. one that yeah. hasn't proven it out, doesn't have their market yet, mm -hmm. um, because there's no guarantee. Like they could spend a lot of money getting their product into shelves mm -hmm. that then end up on the bottom shelf. Mm -hmm. uh, or with clerks that don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it, I think it's, I view that always as like a next stage thing. Sure. Launch sure. your site, perhaps Amazon, uh, have Kickstarter. The Amazon launchpad is super interesting. I'm quite curious how that's going to turn out and what that's going to be like. Yeah, for the listener, what forward. is the Amazon launchpad? Just came out two days ago. So I'm still figuring out what it is, but as far as I can tell, it's a kind of high tech gadget place. And there are a lot of Kickstarters on there or uh, post Kickstarter products on there. And so mm -hmm. like you can pre-order the Blue Smart luggage case. You can order an EO1 frame. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's it's kind of it's their answer to both product hunt and to um, kind of a post Kickstarter store. Plus, I think they're doing some work on the back end to help these guys out with mm -hmm. like Prime and get them basically get these smaller tech startups up to snuff. Uh -huh. They're looking to fill in the gap where a lot of tech startups maybe are just selling exclusively through their own website in kind of smaller, medium mm -hmm. volume, right? Yeah. I mean, we really view Amazon as a startup second website. Like mm -hmm. They should just always be on Amazon as far as I'm concerned. I've heard of some innovation centers asking specifically that Amazon be off the table, hmm. um, which I think is a, that would be a deal breaker, I think, for, for a lot of companies because it really limits your reach to who physically walks into the store. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is, you know, some, some companies go ahead with it because they decide that, that their channel is, you know, is, is, uh, is this particular channel. I've seen some uh, some stores. Uh, Target will do select rollouts. You know, they have these sort mm -hmm. of city targets or innovation center targets. Yep. Um, they just opened here in San Francisco a connected home walkthrough, um, a way to for them to showcase connected home products in particular, which is an area that I think a lot of the innovation centers care a lot about. They mm -hmm. want to be seen as as offering the you know the cool cutting edge. Um, latest thing to come to the market and create a showrooming experience for these startups, which is a, mm -hmm. a very powerful marketing channel. Yeah, one of our teams was offered an exclusive in a Lowe's competitor. Hmm. And they're like, well, we're already talking with Apple. And they're like, <laughs> oh, well, if you can be in the Apple store, that's fine. You mean that then, oh, they, if you can be in the Apple store, we won't demand exclusivity anymore? Uh, well, we won't. They're, they're a fine exception to the exclusivity. Okay. Because okay. they viewed it as a huge brand as a bump yeah, yeah, yeah. the product. Yeah. yeah. And what? they didn't see it as a major customer overlap for them. The new Target store that, uh, that you mentioned, it's on um, 4th Street here in San Francisco. I think it's called uh, Open House, Target Open House. It's fascinating. And uh, mm -hmm. if anyone who's in uh, San Francisco and interested in this kind of thing should take a look because I think there's a lot of anxiety among retailers about how you sell this kind of stuff. And the connected home seems like it's going to be a big product line um, in the next few years. But the the mainstream buyer doesn't necessarily understand the value of it. So the smart house, the excuse me, the the open house uh, store concept, it's a lot like an Ikea. You know, you walk mm -hmm. through and you see these little vignettes set up where there's a here's the kid's bedroom and it has a connected baby monitor, uh, connected uh, carbon monoxide monitor, um, you know, a night light that you can turn on and off remotely. Next to it, there's the connected living room. It has a Sonos system. It has an August lock. Um, you know, so it, it kind of uh, makes these integrations clear to people in a way that, uh, that you wouldn't necessarily 
see them online. It, you can see the brick and mortar retail strategy of the next five years emerging here where the store is, is, is saying, wait a minute, this is actually something where we, we can provide a better experience to the, to the customer than online. Yeah. Which is why I expect Amazon to start having more showrooms. Mm -hmm. do, do they have showrooms anywhere? Well, they have a showroom for AWS on Market Street, but I haven't really? seen one. Yeah, yeah. Mm. There's an AWS zone. So you go in, and it's like a, it's like a AWS consultant. There are like there. shelves with. Yeah, I was gonna say like with, <laughs> one showroom. showroom. Yeah, you just like you walk can, in. You can just... install EC2. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> well, sort of the opposite, right? It's maybe one day they'll uh, open a bookstore. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'll be fascinating. I mean, yeah. they're all they're all kind of like um, dying to figure out what the uh, showrooming strategy is with a brick and mortar online hybrid needs to be. So, okay. So, um, to go back to the process of having a hardware startup, you, um, we've already gone through the kind of, uh, DFM and then your thing is rolling off the line sometime before that, let's say two of your co-founders are engaged in design engineering and, and manufacturing. Maybe you have a third co-founder who is hiring a PR firm, doing some marketing, um, working on graphical identities and lifestyle stuff. When does that, when does that start? And, uh, and, and kind of how do people go about that? That should be happening. I mean, if you have that person, they should be working yeah. on it all the time. I think it's great, depending on burn. So, you know, how much money you're spending um, uh, versus how much you're taking in, then it's really ideal to have someone that you're kind of working with along the way. And I do know of another hardware company um, where they've, they've now been working on the prototype for a year and they, mm -hmm. it's not one of mine. Uh, and they, they, they're just having trouble making that prototype. And so it's like, well, do we mm -hmm. need the marketing person or can they like go away for six months? Um, mm -hmm. But, and maybe, maybe do consulting work and then come back when their burn is not as high. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think startups are all about constraints. Yeah. But in an ideal world, and this is, I borrow this from Dave McClure. I don't know where he got it from, but you want a hacker, hipster, or a hacker, designer, hustler. And I always add a maker. So maker as the hardware. Your hacker is doing your software, your hustler is doing your biz dev and marketing, and then your designer is making is making sure that it works and kind of owns the product. Okay, and then let's jump ahead then. So this has been going on all the time in your startup. Let's jump ahead. Your stuff is rolling off the line. This is where Renee's current uh, <laughs> interests come into play. Um, what happens to your stuff? I mean, you have a factory in China or, or, uh, or Mexico or California and they're cranking out your thing. It's coming, it's, it's getting put in boxes and it's stacking up in a warehouse. What do you do next? Well, you're, uh, you know, I think some part of that depends on how much it weighs and, and the general bulk. I see a lot of, uh, a lot of hardware startups doing air freight to start their manufacturing overseas. And that's because a lot of the time, um, you know, it takes about a month to, to ship something via ocean from Hong Kong to Long Beach. It's maybe two to three weeks on the water. If you are, if you don't have enough product to fill a full 20 foot container, or actually uh, about half a 20 foot container is where it becomes economically advantageous to just take the full, you know, take the full container for the ocean freight. Um, because what happens is there's a lot of um, things that can go wrong during the consolidation process. Um, customs paperwork. It's not just yours. It's the other guys whose stuff is also in the container. Mm -hmm. um, delays, deconsolidation. So we, we see a lot of uh, companies that don't necessarily plan enough lead time for that four-week period. And so they wind up doing air freight, um, which is about five times the cost. Mm -hmm. So again, you're always going to have this, uh, you know, as Brady was saying, constraints. Uh, is, is money or time more of your limiting factor here? Are you on target for your Kickstarter or are you already three months behind where, you know, just adding that extra month to, to ship it cost effectively? Um, does it behoove you to do that or should you just throw it on a plane? I think a lot of companies don't necessarily, you know, you're, you're not going to have a supply chain guy as one of your top four team members. It's just not mm -hmm, going to happen. Mm -hmm. So you do use services like PCH, for example, which offers that air freighting as part of its, uh, as part of its services, or you, um, employ the services of a freight forwarder, uh, or, you know, there's a couple different ways to think about it. Warehousing requires, uh, space, you know, you've got to be planning for that. Who are you going to use in shipwire, uh, Amazon, if you're, you're going to do fulfilled by Amazon. So a number of different options. I think it's important to build the, to have a real true sense of your, your unit cost for, uh, for your logistics as well. And I think that's something that's often neglected because there's so much, focus on just getting it made that mm -hmm. getting it here is really secondary. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I think, you know, we, um, 
you know, my, my company's a Haven. We try to be as modular as possible with customers, allowing them to to use our services and um, you know in the ways that they need. And I think that there are a lot of opportunities, uh, a lot of logistics startups and warehousing startups that have come up to really help with the fulfillment side recently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are a lot. Just I mean, just for like Kickstarter backers, like yep. folks have uh, or Kickstarter projects, their whole fulfillment sites that will you know, help you with your couple hundred or manage the order or do the swag. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I always feel bad when I see, in fact, I, I won't usually back it when I see a Kickstarter that's doing like a $30 t-shirt because either yeah. that means it's super cheap or they're not getting margins and they're not, and they're not, right, uh, right. they're not thinking about the money properly yeah. and they probably won't succeed at the other thing that they're trying to do. Yeah. 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 You should be able to price the Kickstarter so that whatever, whatever increment of money you put in gets you the product instead of just getting you swag. Yes. Or if you want to support it. So like, it's very popular to use crowdfunding for Burning Man projects. And mm-hmm. so I backed uh, my camp's art car. And so I paid $50 and I'm getting a bandana. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. so perfect. It's a 10 to one ratio. I get like a small piece of swag that I'll wear, you know, when I'm riding around the art car, but most of the money went to the art car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, okay. So uh, now your product is either hurtling across uh, the Pacific <laughs> on a plane or um, on a boat and uh, and it gets to the US. It's By this time, you have your retail channels set up and your strategy totally worked out, right? Of course. Hopefully, you already had that. Yeah. Otherwise, you need a place to put all that Weeks stuff. Weeks before. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, hopefully, you already have some customers who want the product and mm-hmm. yeah, then you get it into a distribution center. And meanwhile, uh, let's say you're a Highway One company and you're at this stage. Um, have you already gone for your Series A? Often, often, not always. Yeah, there's also lead time to raising a round, so that's another um, constraint. Yeah. You know, you've, at what point do you feel like you have enough proof points to reach out to an investor with a compelling story? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have those orders, particularly if you have a retail order, which is highly, highly unlikely for 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 first run, but um, then you then you have a a compelling number to take to somebody. Oh, look, we're fulfilling 10,000 units. You know, it's um, evidence of demand. It's mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. that you know, it's going to take you maybe three to six months to raise your round in, unless you're an overnight success. And those are the exception rather than the mm-hmm, rather than mm-hmm. the rule. So again, trying to, maybe your BD guy is doing that concurrently or you're working, you're, you're thinking about um, what you're, you, know, you, sh- you should always be raising capital to support a plan, you know, mm-hmm. a, a vision, a goal. And so you should have your next steps in place mm-hmm. as your stuff is hurling across the ocean. I always look yeah. at it as like, what what did you prove with the prior round? Mm-hmm. Like what theses have never been proved? Uh, mm-hmm. what, what did you learn? And then what are you, what is this next round going to do? Especially the earlier rounds, like you're, you're trying to prove things out. So initially it's like build a team, make one of something. Mm-hmm. Then after you've gotten it off the line, it's like, okay, I can actually build, I can build thousands of these, maybe not quite at scale just yet. And we can foresee price coming down, mm-hmm. sell to your initial customers. And then hopefully that next round is kind of more scaling up manufacturing and getting channel distribution. And something we're seeing happen for some of our companies is they have trouble raising, say, a Series B. They mm-hmm. didn't raise enough in Series A to both scale manufacturing and channel. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so they had planned on doing that as part of Series B, and then they're getting denied Series B, and yet they're running out of money. And so it's kind of a, as people are learning more about hardware, that's mm-hmm. a, a trend that I wouldn't say is widespread yet, but it's something that we're seeing. Interesting. So we're really just seeing like the 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 sort of first bulge cohort reaching that that stage right now, right? These companies mm-hmm. that sort of kicked off maybe three years ago, um, three or four years that, ago, yeah, yeah, in that gap stage now. So, speaking of that kind of thing, um, we have just a couple minutes left. From each of you, what do you think is the biggest mistake, the most common mistake that you see hardware startups making, and that uh, what should they do instead? Honestly, I think it's going to Kickstarter, going to crowdfunding um, before they have their ducks in a row, before they have the team, before they have finished the prototype, before they have uh, line manufacturing, and they have some funding. Now, I think you you could end up with the coolest core, mm-hmm. but you most likely won't. And instead, you end up in this trough of disappointment and kind of where Zach would have ended up with mm-hmm. uh, Particle years ago with the light bulbs if he had done, if he just tried to raise 100,000, made 120. Mm-hmm. And as he said it, we were on a panel together 
uh, last week. He's like, well, I would still be trying to raise that money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would still be trying to make the light bulbs. Yeah. And so it's opportunity costs, not just for your company, but for your life. So in a larger sense, the big mistake is not giving yourself a, a firm binary test at some point along yeah. the line. I think I would say um, having that consistent story is something that I see a lot of people um, not 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 emphasize enough. So the since so many people are making a thing that they want to exist, I think that the uh, assumption is that other people are all like you and they all have that same use case and they all want your thing to exist also. Mm-hmm. And there's a just a kind of a bias there. So being able to get past that blind spot by actually sitting down and having the hard conversations with customers where rather than leading them into answering the question the way you want it, uh, really saying, hey, would you use this? Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if you hear no, accepting that, that you know yeah. perhaps there isn't a market for it, uh, and if you hear yes, really understanding who your customer is, what the motivator is, uh, and then having a plausible story both for yourself, for your company roadmap, and also for mm-hmm. investors down the road saying, this is who my user is, this is what they're likely willing to pay for it, and these are the distribution channels that I need in order to make all of these things line up. Yeah, yeah. Figuring out that your user is not the same as you seems critical. And that seems to be the one of the big things that like home automation in particular needs to overcome, right? I mean... So much of home automation has started with hobbyists and enthusiasts and kind of makers yeah, like doing this stuff. And geeks making product for products for geeks, not realizing that the rest of the world isn't going to pull out their iPhone to turn on their lights. Right, right. There are a lot of geeks who have a lot of money. <laughs> geeks tend to be a little a little more affluent maybe than the average consumer. But it's so it's probably tempting. But uh, well, and you can you can build it into a perfectly reasonable business. Um, you know, once you know where maybe you're not going to be the next Apple, but you are going to be a perfectly uh, respectable brand producing a product that people love, earning a certain amount of money per year. Um, it's just understanding what um, you know, what the more likely outcome is for you, and 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 planning your your capital raises accordingly. Also. Mm-hmm. Well, th- thank you so much for joining us. If, if listeners want to find you, aside from reading The Hardware Startup uh, by Renee DeResta, Brady Forrest, and Ryan Vineyard, who wasn't able to join us on this recording today, um, where should people go? Twitter, probably. I'm uh, at no upside. And I'm at Brady on Twitter. Excellent. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. For links and other information related to this episode, visit radar.oreilly.com. If you liked this conversation, you'd certainly enjoy the Solid Conference, returning to San Francisco in April 2016. To register, visit solidcon.com. Until next time, I'm David Craner. And I'm John Bruner.